David Simon is a professor of development geography at King's College who researches urban development in the context of climate change with a focus on the growing cities of Africa. He was director of Mistra Urban Futures, a research center focused on transdisciplinary and transurban inquiry within his field from 2014 to 2019. Professor David Simon, welcome to One Planet and Future Cities podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here, Mia. So you're a developmental geographer, but you've been thinking about the sustainable cities and you know, the problems we have in our cities and how we can transform them. It's kind of your life's right. work. I believe you're going to read from one of your books. It helps give a little view into the challenges we face. Sure. Um, even that is is a hard selection to, to make because there are numerous things and numerous topics that we could address. But I'm going to read a little bit from the introduction to the book that I co-wrote and edited in 2016 called Rethinking Sustainable Cities, Accessible, Green and Fair, because it seems to me to encapsulate many of the issues, not just about urban areas, but the relationship between them and the wider spaces, places and territories of which cities and towns form integral parts. That the importance of urban sustainability is now receiving wide recognition represents the first prerequisite for progress towards that objective. However, therein lies a double paradox. While it might at first sight seem feasible to make well-resourced, orderly towns and cities in high-income countries more sustainable, changing the entrenched, resource-intensive, high-consumption economic processes and lifestyles there and the power relations and vested interests bound up with them will require immense effort, as well as finance and political will. Conversely, to many people, the widespread poverty, resource and service deficits, and the chronic traffic congestion of large, fast-growing cities in poor countries represent the ultimate challenge or wicked urban problem. Yet, although powerful vested interests exist there too, and can be highly resistant to change, the example of Lagos under the previous governor, Babatunde Fashola, demonstrates how an energetic champion, untainted by personal corruption, committed to the cause, and possessing the right connections, can bring about remarkable results in a relatively short period, even in the face of some of the most severe problems in any megacity. Naturally, though, however sustainable or otherwise, cities do not exist as isolated islands of bricks, concrete, steel, glass, tarmac, corrugated iron, wood, and cardboard. Indeed, they form integral parts of wider natural and politico-administrative regions, as well as national and supranational entities on which they depend for resources, waste disposal, human interaction, and the circulation of people, commodities, and finance. Urban areas can lead or lag in sustainability transitions, but ultimately, sustainable towns and cities exist only as components of more or less sustainable societies. That is both a truism and shown historically with evidence accumulating from various urban-based societies on different continents. This further complexity creates so-called boundary problems, since the interactive systems span often numerous administrative areas, complicating yet further what are already complex development, economic, environmental, political, and social and technical challenges. 
Indeed, the complexity, they're, they're ecosystems and full of the unpredictabilities uh, that that entails. So, you know, we're living in the century of the city. And as you know, across the globe, cities are growing at an unprecedented rate and are now home to the majority of the world's population. Um, they say by 2050, uh, an estimated, is it two out of three people worldwide right, will exactly. live in cities? Mm-hmm. So, you know, despite, as you say, there's steel and concrete and crowds and traffic cities are still these ecosystems whose condition profoundly marks the quality of our lives. So many people want to know, you know, what is their future going to look like in terms of, you know, as you say, transport, climate, housing, education, you know, now working at home, storm surges, heat waves. So as you envisage cities of the future, what kind of programs are taking place and need to take place to make the rapid transition towards sustainability and mitigate climate change? Well, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> uh, it's a big question. I'll try and keep the answer relatively small. Crucially, I think it's it's important to realize that, and there's a paradox here too, on the one hand, big change can often be brought about through a whole series of small or modest interventions that complement each other in positive ways so that the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts. If each of us switches off the light every time we leave the room, um, makes sure that all our aluminium drinks cans, plastic bottles and other single use plastics are recycled along with paper, cardboard, organic waste and so on, they all make significant contributions. They won't in and of themselves bring about a sustainability transition. So we need more than that. We need to think about shifting to renewable energy. Uh, We need to think and crucially to act in terms of a circular economy. Now, the recycling that I talked about, minimizing resource use in the first place, reusing where possible, and then recycling or, or repurposing goods are key components. Again, they need to build on other things. And crucially, we need all the different stakeholders, so individual households, private sector, Um, firms, local governments, regional and national governments, all to act in accordance with what are now widely agreed to be good practices, objectives with key and achievable targets and timelines to enable us to measure progress. And that's where, for example, the value of the sustainable development goals come in, because yeah, there are limitations and problems with each and every one of the indicators set to measure the targets in the respective goals. But ultimately, it's about a 15-year trajectory from 2016, when implementation started, till the end point in 2030. And of course, they build on the Millennium Development Goals, which ran for 15 years before them. But we now do have 17 rather than eight. Uh, they're more disaggregated. There are far more targets and indicators. And Goal 11 is specifically about sustainable cities and human settlements. So the idea is to provide, and we tested these quite rigorously before they were finalized, to ensure that these should be widely applicable across all different cities, sizes, categories, and in different parts of the world where different environmental and political and social economic conditions prevail, to measure uh, meaningful change in in a practical way. But ultimately, it's up to the individual city, to the individual households and enterprises to make their own decisions. And if they use this as an opportunity to change, rather than just as a self-serving opportunity for greenwashing or to try to portray what they do already in a favorable light, then they can really lead to quite substantial change. On the other hand, we also have to remember that progress towards sustainability is not irreversible. 
So a change of political leadership, the intrusion of conflicts, as we're seeing very graphically on our screens every day at the moment in the cities and towns of Ukraine, sustainability can quite literally be blown out of the window frame in an instant. And, you know, whatever happens from now, it's going to take a long time and a vast amount of resources and, and goodwill and so on to rebuild Ukraine in whatever way becomes possible. That highlights the unsustainability of conflict and destruction in all sorts of obvious ways, but you know, the, the, the human cost, the material cost, the infrastructure cost, the energy waste, those toxic emissions from all the exploding munitions and everything else highlights just how much progress can be reversed in the blink of an eye. Uh, and that'll again take ages to recover from. There are of course far more less dramatic uh, examples one could give, but sometimes you need a dramatic example to to highlight uh, the challenge. Exactly. And I don't like to say that there is any silver lining with a war, but, you know, I was speaking the other day with Paula Pino, who is, she's the director of the European Commission's uh, Just Transition Director for General right. Energy, as you know. And so it's really made the, uh, Europe think more seriously about our energy dependency. So maybe if it helps us spur... <clears throat> If it, I don't like to think, you know, there's a huge cost and tragedy and war, Absolutely. but it has, people say, made us think seriously. We have to make this transition. We can't be, you know, right. out of the mercy of these things. So you've spoken about a lot of things. I know there's a lot of programs and it's 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 difficult to know where to put your energies. There's so many transitions. <laughs> but it was interesting because you talk about, you know, within the, you know, de- developed world or developing nations, we have to in some ways, like you have to reinvent infrastructures or go mm-hmm. back to previous infrastructures, like the old European model, the structure, you know, your development geography. Right. This it's, it's kind of designed for this more local living. If we can go right. back to that and build upon the design elements. Right. Yes. And I think that's really important. It's always difficult to, to avoid sort of charges of being nostalgic. If we talk about going back to things, um, you know, back to the past, as it were, or forward to the past. But there are principles that existed in particularly pre-industrial, early industrial cities, perhaps, and which were overturned by key technological inventions of the late 19th and early 20th century, and particularly the railway, the motor car, and of course, the internal combustion engine on which it's based, uh, and which led to the vast expansion of towns and cities and crucially suburbanization, where people who could afford it moved out of the more polluted, densely populated inner areas into low density, better lifestyle oriented um, suburbs and even beyond the suburbs into the sort of surrounding rural areas and were able to commute in by fast means to their workplace in the city. But the result of that is what we now face as the challenge of unsustainability. And as you rightly say, the key feature that still characterizes many European cities today, uh, London, Paris, Berlin, many others, is the idea that they are composed ultimately of a series of, in London they like to call them villages, but at least neighborhoods and areas that have multiple land uses and dense social networks of interaction within a small area. And it is that principle of what is now called by Anna Hidalgo, the the mayor of Paris, and being 
um, popularized more widely by the C40's Climate Cities Leadership Network and others as the 15 or 20 minute city or 15, 20 minute neighborhood. The idea underpinning it, which is what you were flagging, I think, in, in, in your um, comment and question, is that a higher proportion of the goods and services, the activities, the social interactions that we need are obtainable within a sort of one and a half to two kilometer radius of one's home, which means that a far higher proportion of one's individual trips or multiple purpose journeys can be done on foot and by bicycle. And therefore, you use your vehicle, if you have one, more sparingly. Uh, you use the bus or minibuses to reach slightly more distant places. And then you have transport interchanges where you connect with the metro system or the bus rapid transit or the railway or, or whatever it is to reach other parts of the large cities or indeed for intercity journeys. And that is part of what is now becoming the new best practice, if you like, in terms of urban planning, redesign both of existing urban areas to try to revitalize inner city areas, other areas that are depressed and in need of economic regeneration, and the principles on the basis of which we need to design new areas, whether they're um, on the outskirts of bigger cities or in the context of, of middle and low income countries, designing entirely new cities, which are going to be built over the coming 20 or 30 years, and which in terms of the number of people who live in them and the number of hectares or square kilometers that they will cover of the Earth's surface will be equivalent to that built between the beginning of urbanization and the present day. It's a staggering thought, but if you think about it that way, it highlights the importance of new build, new design, according to our latest understandings of sound sustainability principles. Yeah, and I think it also increases, it has the potential to increase the sense of community as we reflect now on this very unusual past two years with COVID, there were right. some elements that we you began to notice your community because you couldn't uh -huh. travel outside. Right. So, um, and we found it luck, those of us lucky to live with, you know, you know, with a pretty good community mm -hmm. and access to a lot of things, uh, we noticed a bit more and we, we traveled that way. So it's not that difficult. So like a carbon diet. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, well, our, well, while our technologies catch up, we need to buy that time right. to allow that transition. Um, and the other key thing that was highlighted by the pandemic and the various forms of lockdown that were imposed in different places was the importance of access to leisure facilities, outdoor leisure facilities, green public open spaces, if you like, for mental health as well as physical health and exercise. And what it showed almost universally is that areas that were inhabited by the better off people, uh, middle classes and elites, were better served and had much better access within a reasonable distance to those kinds of places. And therefore, most people there did far better than poor people who lived in high density, inner urban areas, often in, in high rise apartment blocks, quite often with extended families, uh, people who were poor, lacked adequate health and nutrition to start with, often complicated by underlying health uh, conditions and so on, and they did much worse. And that's also where the, the illness and the mortality rates were far higher. So again, what 
as you said in re response to you know, the silver lining of, of, of the Ukraine conflict, a similar point here. What we're trying to do in architecture, urban planning, design, and related disciplines now, and I work quite a lot with local authorities in, in this part of the world and, and elsewhere, is, is to learn those lessons and use those to try to improve the quality and equality of access to green public space and the other key infrastructure and amenities. So that if we have another pandemic, those communities are more resilient, that we reduce the inequality that's built into the urban fabric, if you like. So another way of putting that is that the pandemic, it didn't create inequalities, but it exposed the underlying inequalities in terms of who lives where, who has access to what kind of jobs, infrastructure, social services, welfare systems, and so on, and has again pushed up the agenda, the importance of addressing that so that structural inequality, as opposed to just income inequality, is actually reduced. And that, of course, is a key characteristic of sustainable cities, that we reduce poverty and equality for exactly those reasons. Yeah, because, and I think it's something we all have to think about, no matter whether we, you know, live in an affluent society, whatever, it's because in terms of overpopulation and, uh, you know, water crisis and all these resource <clears throat> crises that we have, we, we have to design these spaces better to serve us. And on a sidebar, I did speak with someone who is an expert in, in Edo, Japan, and this is something that they mm -hmm. got right, as you know, years ago. Absolutely. Um, can you believe it? People lived in Ten, well, in Japan, they still manage in small spaces, but 10 square meters for a family. Mm -hmm. But as you say, they had the infrastructure, the social spaces. Absolutely. So it's Absolutely. kind of, you yeah. know, we have to, re, if smart thinking, we can, we can get there. So there's I'm also gonna, a lot of work, sorry to interrupt, but there's a lot of work going on, interestingly, amongst archaeologists and um, historians of, of, of um, cities, looking at how many um, indigenous societies and in other parts of the world lived. And many of these, of course, were conquered and destroyed during the period of, of European colonial imperial expansion, you know, between five and 600 years ago. And there's strong evidence now emerging from archaeology, from use of LIDAR, ground penetrating radar and other surveys, as well as re-examination of historical records to show that even multi-million cities in you know, what is today Mexico City and adjacent areas, in the Angkor Wat civilization, in, in what is now Cambodia, in parts of the Middle East and, and Near East, the various Chinese uh, empires as they were, uh, the Mughal empires, many of those cities were highly sustainable precisely because they had sophisticated water circulation systems, waste disposals, organic waste recycling, bearing in mind that we were before plastics and, and, and glass and so on in, in such cases. So a high proportion of waste was organic and, and, and what we would today call biodegradable and recyclable. There was a lot of intensive agriculture right in or adjacent to the, the city boundaries. And so what we would call food miles were very restricted. Um, the 
the linear distance that food was brought, waste was disposed of, and so on, uh, was, was very limited. And so those systems were often highly sustainable over long, long periods of time. And it was often through changing environmental conditions or external conquest and destruction that um, they met their end. And again, there are lots of really interesting lessons that we're starting to learn from those older societies and their written records and, and other evidence like um, aerial surveys and so forth that we can learn from in terms of how to adapt our current ways of life in accordance with greater sustainability principles in those environments and contexts. So with that in mind, um, you worked at Mistra Urban Futures from 2014 to 2019? Yeah, That's correct, yes. What do you think the most important or rewarding project you undertook during your time there was? Well, there were there were so many within the, the broad program, um, but I think the most important overall was the experimentation that we undertook on comparative urban research, where we worked with teams comprising different stakeholders, so academic researchers, um, local government officials, um, some NGOs or civil society organizations, private sector firms, national research agencies, and so on in the respective cities that were in different parts of the world, including, if you like, global north and south, but working together as teams to explore issues of mutual interest, which were often very similar. And we were able to show by doing that how we could do comparative research to draw out lessons of good practice. So we weren't trying to say do as Gothenburg did or do as Cape Town did or Kisumu, but these are the issues that we all faced. This is how it was addressed in this uh, situation. And here are the principles that we've distilled out of the comparative analysis that you can use in your city, wherever that is, to try to adapt to your local conditions and apply them with a high degree of confidence that these will lead to improvements. And the importance of that is you can only really do it by comparing multiple places. If you're simply working in one city, you can say this worked or this didn't work, or this seemed to be the recipe for success. But the only thing you can say is by definition, if you take that as a blueprint, it won't work anywhere else because it's got to be adapted to the local um, environmental, economic, social, cultural, political uh, context. And that's the value of the comparative work, being able to draw out, if you like, these lessons of, of guidelines that we've developed that people can take and adapt to their own respective local circumstances. Yeah, having that knowledge, is, we can save years, decades even. So you've discussed, you know, your work with, uh, you know, public policy, you know, the responsibility of the individual. There's also the private sector. So do you think mm-hmm. that decarbonization targets can be met without close collaboration of the private sector? What are some digital technologies that will make a difference in terms of <clears throat> um, capability and efficiency? Well, yeah, of course, there are different views on on these issues from different people. And there are still many people in the public sector who who think of of private enterprise as the big bad wolf, proverbially, um, and the source of pollution and environmental destruction, which is true. But actually, 
they're also the source of the innovation, uh, the new technologies, the uh, much more resource efficient um, production processes, and some of the key in, in innovations in circularity, in um, digital and, and so-called smart technologies and all the rest. And ultimately, I think almost everywhere, the way forward has to involve all the different stakeholders. Because if private firms simply see um, the municipality or, or the national government as regulators trying to um, restrict what they do, that's unhelpful. If uh, certain civil society groups simply see private sector as, as somehow inherently bad or, or, or exploitative, again, it's unhelpful. And the way forward is to try to address the negative, to avoid the pollution, the resource destruction, promote the circularity. And the best way forward is through citizen pressure. And we see that over the last few years, where the idea of renewable energy, to pick up the example you gave a few minutes ago, Mia, or many of the, the, the green circular um, economy innovations were seen and, and were a kind of radical fringe preoccupation. They cost more, uh, they were clunky, uh, very few people really understood them, and most existing firms said, oh, we can't afford to go green, or we can't afford uh, to, to stop what we're doing, burning fossil fuels, whatever, because it's going to cost too much and we can't afford it, or people won't be able to afford the products. But actually, as new innovations have hit the market, uh, so if we think about renewables, we've reached a position in the last two years where the cost per kilowatt of installed capacity for renewables, particularly um, solar panels and wind turbines, is now, even before the craziness of, of world energy prices the last two or three months uh, and, and still going because of the Ukraine crisis, they were substantially lower per kilowatt or kilowatt hour of, of generated capacity. The result of that has been a, a gradual but now rapidly increasing shift through market forces out of fossil fuels and into renewables. And this is true worldwide. Um, the UK was always a laggard in renewable energy. Uh, it has suddenly become a leader. And similarly in the US, for, for similar reasons, uh, hundreds of cities across the USA, uh, regardless of what the federal government of the day has done or said, have actually increased their investment, the incentives, and the energy mix that most US households use is actually today very different from what most people think it is, because the contributions of renewables have gone up so significantly. And that is now going to change even faster for the reasons you mentioned. Um, in, in Europe, they're planning a big new investment program in renewables. It may also land up being a big new investment program in nuclear, which is much more controversial for a bunch of reasons. And in the short term, it's going to involve supply switching so that there are efforts to, to replace the energy supplies, the, the, the gas, the oil that people are dependent on at the moment, because of course, it's going to take a number of years really to to up the scale of renewables to to replace the Russian um, energy imports that that existed up to a week or two ago. But there is a spontaneous change, and the crucial thing is if that is steered or encouraged by 
um, governments through incentives to individual households or firms, it can accelerate it. But where the thrust of regulations is seen to work against market principles is where you get into the really difficult um, arguments and, and, and trade-offs. So the point I'm really making is that when the scale of production, when the technology is the cost of a new solar panel or a wind turbine fall because of economies of scale, because of technological efficiencies that arise over multiple generations of, of these uh, technologies, then it becomes a game changer. And the same thing is true now on aggregate with green and renewable jobs. The number of jobs we are creating, which are clean and sustainable in retrofitting existing buildings, in, in redesigning um, everything from street lights to reduced energy, zero energy buildings, putting on green roofs, maintaining them, having gray water harvesting systems so that the water from our, our baths and our showers uh, doesn't just go to waste, but it can be used to, to, to uh, water the plants in your garden or on a municipal scale, can water the plants and, and the lawns on the school fields uh, in the, the traffic islands or medians, as, as they're called in the US, um, public recreation areas, all those kind of innovation, and also repurified for, for again, um, non-personal consumption uses. These kind of things make a huge difference to the sustainability transition to the so-called ecological footprint. And bearing in mind how global population and global urban population are increasing, those interventions have to be a key part of the mix in almost any uh, version of a sustainability transition. Yes. And I guess it's always the balance in terms of empowering those who are making some of the innovations, but also the ba on balance to making sure that yep. uh, the Green New Deal isn't <clears throat> just seen as an alternative profit model. It's like right. <laughs> capitalism uh, 2.0. Yeah, it's, it's it's maintaining that balance, but I, I it's it's so I'm really hopeful. I'm you've been in this field for a long time, and you've seen. I, I can imagine the sense of impatience in terms of the one. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And one of the key words here, um, which was sort of implicit in what we were just saying, is the idea of co-benefits, and that sometimes if you make a positive investment or take a positive action. It has other benefits as well. And sometimes those co-benefits can actually be greater than the, the reason or the objective behind the intervention in the first place. So if we go back to the one example that I, I mentioned earlier about uh, the, the, the results of the COVID pandemic leading to um, improvements in people's access to green open space uh, when they take more exercise, they hopefully lose weight, they might improve their diets, then those health benefits and the reduced impact on health services can actually be as great or greater than the individual benefits to each person who becomes fitter and, and loses a bit of weight and feels better in terms of mental health as a result of having that access to and the ability to use public green open space. Hi, I'm Eric Rosen. We as a species are at a point where it's likely that, no matter what we do in the near future, climate change will have some impact on our lives. In the next segment, David Simon will speak to this. He will describe how the advancement of the Sahara is driving cattle herders away from vanished Sahel pasture lands into African cities. 
how receding glaciers in the Himalayas threatened the lives of millions of Indians who lived by the Ganges Delta, how storms, floods, droughts, and wildfires threatened to level the world we once lived in. We can no longer hope to prevent everything, and so we must adapt to what will come. This is the crux of Simon's research, studying how today's ever-growing cities work to mitigate and adapt to the natural threats they face, working to discover what works and what doesn't. But I know a city which, from its inception, has had to deal with the fury of the elements through mighty works of civil engineering. I know a city where 15-minute neighborhoods are on the rise and where most of those neighborhoods can find green space and parks aplenty. I live there. It's called Chicago. Even after the draining of the swamp where the city now stands, the problem of water persisted. It's one thing to dump your waste into the Chicago River and let it flow out to Lake Michigan, but what do you do when you get your drinking water from that lake too? And when that same water can eat away at the foundations of the city at any moment? If you're the old builders of Chicago, you build a canal that essentially reverses the flow of the river, bringing wastewater across the entire state to the Mississippi. You take water from the lake a mile out instead of at the shore. And because you want to make sure that waste from big buildings flows down into the river, you build downtown on an elevated concrete platform, leaving underways like Lower Wacker to be a concealed floodplain. You build most of your robust public transit elevated so the trains will run no matter what the situation is like on the ground. You build and design with the threat and the promise of water in mind. And it's not like all of Chicago's flood mitigation projects were built through brute force and reinforced concrete. Our massive forest preserves are floodplains capable of sucking up the fury of all the rivers that flow to Lake Michigan during the wet season. And our lakefront is both a miracle mile of green space where residents can get the outside release Simon talked about in his interview and a buttress against flooding. It's amazing, really, how much thought was put into this city even as it grew constantly exponentially. Will all Chicago's solutions be suitable for water-adjacent cities everywhere? No. But my city shows us that the challenges facing us are solvable. We can survive. We can persist. We can build sustainable cities in the 21st century because we have been building them for as long as we have had cities to speak of. Now, back to the interview. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, some of your research. You seem to have a pretty strong research focus on African urban development. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, um, in your research, what cities in Africa do you think are particularly vulnerable to climate change? Which ones are particularly have, you know, good prospects? And what do you think sort of makes the difference between them? Right. Well, um, one of the great ironies underpinning our growing understanding of climate and broader environmental change um, is that this is also riddled with inequalities. I was talking just now at the sort of intra-urban scale or the neighborhood scale, if you like, but it's true at the continental, the global scale too. So in terms of uh, continental emissions, Africa is the major continent with the lowest overall contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions, but it is also at the same time the continent that is already and in the future will continue to experience some of the most severe consequences of climate change and global warming. 
along coastal regions. It's to do with uh, storm surges, sea level rise and flooding, as well as some other things. And in many of the inland areas, it's to do with changing rainfall patterns, increasing aridity, uh, in some cases, increasing winds. And in the areas that are already most vulnerable, even active desertification. So to give you one specific example, the Sahara has been effectively moving southwards uh, at a steady pace over recent decades. And the consequences of that have been that many rural pastoralists, as in livestock herders and small farmers or people with a, a mixture of the two, in the northern parts of um, countries like Ghana and Senegal, and certainly most of the people in, in countries like Mali and Niger and Burkina Faso, have increasingly been unable to sustain their traditional livelihoods with seasonal migration uh, and so on, uh, especially when those migration routes get cut off by fencing and, and competing land claims. So the result has been a growing number of those people have become rural to urban migrants moving south to the capital cities or the larger urban centers in those countries. And a proportion of them land up as the people we pick up in the, in the global literature and see on our screens trying to cross the Mediterranean, or in some cases, actually uh, the Atlantic from West Africa to reach the Canary Islands, Madeira, um, and often as not, they get capsized in, in um, rough water, or they're not seaworthy boats and, and, and canoes and whatever else they might use in the first place. And so we get these constant um, harrowing tales of mass drownings or, or ships having to rescue hundreds of people at sea. So the origin of those people in many, but not all cases, is from displaced livelihoods as a result of environmental and climate change. Um, of course, there are plenty of other people who didn't get displaced, but want a better future for them and their families from those big cities. But there's an example of where climate change, environmental change is making entire ecosystems, entire regions and livelihood systems increasingly fragile and vulnerable and perhaps unsustainable. The same is happening in other ways in, in the Horn of Africa, in the, the uh, semi-deserts of, of Southern Africa to a smaller extent as well, and elsewhere. In Latin America, for example, many, but not all, of the Andean glaciers um, have been in retreat in the Himalayas, some of them as well. And it is those glaciers, when they melt in the summer, that provide the water for the major rivers of the respective regions in South Asia, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, and so on, which provide the lifeblood of parts of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. And the real concern in the longer term is that as those glaciers retreat, there is less uh, accumulated ice and therefore the summer melts and the flow of those rivers will decline and become more unpredictable. And therefore the whole um, pastoral system of the Ganges and Brahmaputra deltas that you know, eventually flow into the, the Bay of Bengal will get undermined. Water supply to the many mega cities and all the people in those areas uh, will be compromised. And that that also represents uh, a kind of existential crisis that's looming and may actually strike in countries like Nepal even sooner than, than in, in the lower lying areas. So there are all sorts of um, issues and they exist in different combinations in, in different places. Can I think of 
a specific city that, that has good prospects. Um, there are some, and they're generally the ones that uh, have managed to remain sustainable rather than growing exponentially. Um, they're almost certainly the ones with good resource bases and local governments that have enough resources and capacity and where, crucially, they are planning ahead and making the kinds of appropriate interventions that, that we're talking about. And in most cases, those are small or intermediate towns and cities uh, of maybe 50, 100, 350, maybe 500,000 people um, and where meeting these challenges is perhaps more doable, if you like, on a modest scale than your mega cities or, or the growing million plus cities where the scale of challenges is, is often greater than the capacity to intervene. But that's a, a broad generalization and there are exceptions everywhere. Yes. And so how did your training as a geographer prepare you for this very interdisciplinary work and challenges that we face? Um, well, geography is inherently an integrative discipline, both because it combines, if you like, human and physical geography, which examine um, the anthropocentric and anthropogenic world and the biophysical world, um, respectively, and tries to integrate them, as a result of which uh, I think, again, as a generalization, most geographers tend to read quite well into the literatures of many other disciplines, uh, social sciences or natural life sciences, respectively, um, far more perhaps than people in other disciplines. So that's really good preparation. Um, but you, you might also have asked the question, why did I choose to study uh, geography? And the answer to that is, is a bit more complex. But probably reflects the fact that I was born and grew up in South Africa, um, in fact, in Cape Town, which is a, a city and a country of um, you know, extraordinary natural beauty and diversity. And my parents took me on journeys every year during our annual uh, holidays to different parts of the country. And we went hiking in mountains or went to national parks and game reserves um, or, or other sort of environmental condition areas. So I quickly learned the, the value and the beauty of these different environments and, and appreciation for nature environment. But I also remember very strongly as, as, as a child being struck by the difference between the way in which these game reserves and national parks were conserved and patrolled for the benefit of the natural environment and the wildlife and the enjoyment of, of visitors, and yet the acute poverty of the surrounding communities on the other side of the boundary fence. And there were issues of poaching, which of course uh, still exist, and, and perhaps even more intensively in many places today. And I, I yeah, reflected on that, and how can one uh, challenge that. And then I was immensely privileged to be selected to go during um, my middle year of secondary school on a course run by uh, an organization in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa called the Wilderness Leadership School. We spent a fortnight walking on foot um, in um, these areas on wilderness trails, uh, learning from some of the, the, the local community rangers and game guards, um, helping in translocation of species to to help populate new conservation areas 
or remove them from areas where they were in danger result of poaching. So I you know, participated in that, um, became acutely aware of the problems of poaching and the threat to endangered species, uh, and also acutely aware in a more systematic way of the web of ecology, if you like, and the way in which different species all interact, and that the idea of conserving one species makes little sense unless you're conserving the habitat or the ecosystem on which they are codependent. And that sort of interest in the complexity, the ecological, the agro-environmental systems, the way in which people interact with their environment exploitatively or otherwise, the way in which certain political systems like apartheid in South Africa, under which I grew up, created wealth for some and immense poverty for others, for which the boundary fence of the game reserve or national park to me was and remains perhaps the the most powerful uh, symbolic um, signifier. So all of those things played key roles influenced, if you like, my decision of the subject to study in in, in university. Um, And I took geography along with social anthropology, economics, and zoology, and gradually narrowed down as as I progressed and specialized in human, economic, urban, and, and if you like, development geography, which in different combinations have kind of been the hallmarks of my career in different combinations uh, ever since. Oh, yes. Well, it's a great foundation for what you've done because it allows, it invites in all these other disciplines. Uh, it really it gives a, gl- a global education. Um, and of course, us here, we're concerned with how we can educate for the future and how we can you know, educate the, the average citizen or a farmer or people who may not be educated mm-hmm. at university, um, you know, at a young age, how can each of us become more climate literate? And so how important do you think training and teaching young people about climate change? Oh, is absolutely fundamental. In some places, the school curriculum has already been uh, changed, uh, adapted to include that. Um, in others, there's a lot of work to be done. And I'll give you one uh, lovely example um, from, I suppose, about 15, 18 years ago now, I was leading a multi-partner project in Kumasi, the second city of Ghana, on exactly the sorts of issues we're talking about, sustainable um, and renewable natural resource use in and surrounding uh, a fast-growing city. And we were working intensively in a series of communities on the fringes of the cities that had some remaining rural characteristics and increasingly some urban characteristics. And we involved some of the junior secondary school children in this work with their teacher because there was provision in the syllabus, but there was very little knowledge or or experience among the teachers and so on, really how to do this. And so we created that capacity. We provided a little bit of training. We bought a stock of very cheap and simple kits that kids could use under the guidance of their teachers to test the water, to measure the pH, for example, water and the soil. Uh, We provided education in how their families could utilize um, their fruit and vegetable waste, you know, the peelings, the the banana skins, the plantain skins and and all the rest to, to create compost and then use that to um, fertilize their crops 
or in many cases, because these were poor people living uh, in a, in a semi-urban context, to grow food in their back gardens, a kind of kitchen garden, as a way of both teaching the kids, which was the immediate objective, to, to grow and to understand the idea of, of cultivation and, and the natural production cycle and how plants grow and they need water and nutrients, make them grow better and healthier and more nutritious in terms of the fruit or, or whatever it is that was the edible component. And this was also done at the school. So that in class, they had um, a, a kind of school kitchen garden, which they used to supply kids with, with better quality food at lunchtime. But the kids then also took this awareness and about recycling back to their families. And we sort of monitored this over the remaining year or 18 months of the project. And the kids acted as real awareness raisers to their parents, their siblings, their grandparents in some cases. And in those communities, there was a really tangible positive impact in that very short time by getting them involved hands-on, enrolling the teachers, utilizing the space in the curriculum where these things existed in theory, but up to that point, not in practice. And those kinds of principles can be used anywhere in almost any environment. You can do the equivalent thing at school or your 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 girl guides or scout group or, or other youth group um, where there is a facility. There are often solidarity groups amongst poor people in, in low-income communities where the benefits are not just the sort of feel-good factor, but they're actually material benefits in terms of better nutrition and health or growing some things that they can sell uh, to, to earn a little income to help the, the family budget and so on and so forth. So, yeah, absolutely fundamental. Yeah. And what I like about that is it's hands on, it's experiential uh, because people, there's this disconnect between what, like the theory of it, the complications of it, and how do you do it in your own life? Right. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, is that kind of awareness can be translated into broader action as well. I mean, if we think uh, about the impact of Greta Thunberg, yeah, the Swedish schoolgirl over climate change and emissions and the movement the Friday, you know, school strikes, protests, writing letters, using social media. These are powerful instruments. And there are numerous examples around the world where the children of, of school going age um, put pressure on their local elected representative in, in their neighborhood, in the city council, or indeed even national political leaders. And if enough do that, it creates a kind of momentum and pressure. Social media are really powerful vehicles for that kind of grassroots action over environmental climate change and related agendas. And again, there are examples from all over the world where this is being done and makes a really huge difference. And even, you know, even I say my age and, and stage of career, um, the idea of petitions through various NGOs about some specific local environmental issue or more general pressure on politicians to increase the ambition of for example, their emissions reduction targets that they were discussing at COP26 in Glasgow in November, and anything in between the global and the local. These kinds of campaigns where young people who know what they're talking about are articulate, but able to make uh, a forceful impact on politicians that the way many adults can't, can be really critical to influencing um, behavior and, and progress by you know, local, regional, national governments. 
I just want to ask a little question about a book you wrote in 2019 called Holocaust Escapees and Global Development Hidden History, sort of a, uh-huh. a sort of hidden history of your right. own development field and how so many of these Holocaust refugees uh-huh. in your field and right. the work you're doing now. Could you just speak a little bit about that? Well, again, perhaps because of my own family history where my parents were Holocaust refugees, it, it kind of resonated. And I just became aware through um, some other work I was doing, editing a book on key thinkers in development, that a surprising number of these people who were very influential in the evolution of the subject area and the field of global or international development, as it evolved after World War II, shared that sort of background from some part of Western, Central, Eastern Europe of having been uh, refugees, having escaped. And then for the reasons that I set out to explore in the book, decided to, at some point in their career, move into that sort of development field. And what was really interesting is that for some of them, it was absolutely a fundamental consequence of having escaped the ghetto or or the internment camp. Uh, For others, it was kind of coincidental or happenstance as a result of things that happened later in their career and everything in between. So I wasn't able to to, to have a a sort of similar, uh, simple conclusion that, yes, this was a fundamental life-changing experience that led them in that particular direction um, because various pathways, routes were, were evident. And equally, of course, vast numbers of people who had shared that kind of um, experience of of displacement, becoming refugees, surviving the camps, went on into other fields, legal, medical, and other sort of fields you might call social welfare or helping to make the world a better place, but even more went into ordinary commerce, industry, public service of one sort or another. So there was no obvious connection. Uh, But it does, I think, strike a chord for those where it was important of how they sought to use the benefit of their experience of poverty, of discrimination, of brutality, having come out and had the benefit of a good formal education to use it to, to try and improve the human condition. Well, it's a wonderful observation. And just to see, I mean, I I think survivors, you know, knowing about what that really means, and we're now facing, as you say, you know, climate refugees, it's another right. kind of survival. So and to know how to live on less, Absolutely. Um, I think it really pain, it does sharpen your, your instincts <laughs> and, and knowledge in terms of um so many, so many of these issues that we face today. So in closing, as you think about the future and education kind of world we're leaving for future generations, what are some life lessons that were important to you, some important teachers? Uh, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think the idea fundamentally that despite the enormity of the challenges, we call them wicked problems or wicked challenges, precisely because they seem so overwhelming, so immense, so all-encompassing, that there is a natural tendency to think that each one of us is powerless in the face of the tsunami of climate change, um, to mix a metaphor, or 
the magnitude of the kind of crisis that we have um, in, in you know, Ukraine and, and surrounding areas now that are going to take years to work out, regardless of what specifically actually happens. But it is really important, and that lesson, as you flag from, from, from the book on hidden histories and global development, is that every individual can make a difference. Um, not everybody has to become a prime minister or a president or the secretary general of the UN to make a difference. Each and every one of us in whatever walk of life, whether we're poor, rich or anywhere in between, every person can make a difference in terms of their personal practices and trying to influence those around them, family, friends, local community groups to change whatever it is that they are able to do. Because I said at the beginning, big change can come in different ways, one of which is a whole series of small or modest changes that then build, complement each other, build on one another. The other is a kind of revolutionary change where we throw out one system and bring back another or bring in another. Um, but those are, are very disruptive. Um, there are always many casualties. And if we're thinking of anything short of war revolution, it's very challenging even to try to understand how that might happen. And so having a framework of regulations, of laws that facilitate positive change, but then rely on individuals and private firms and so on to um, make those changes in a collaborative way with encouragement from regulations or incentives is the best way forward. And as I said a couple of moments ago, don't underestimate the role of individual and collective protest through social media, to your local government, to your school governors, to your community groups, or indeed to your private industries if they continue to pollute or to ignore sustainable practices. Uh, if they understand that their customers, their clients, their consumers are not satisfied with what they're doing and will vote with their feet and find an alternative supply if that doesn't change, they will change because ultimately otherwise they go out of business. So again, it's, it's trying to reinforce those kinds of positive behaviors using a combination of encouragement of carrots, if you like, and, and, and stick or, or the threat of we'll go and buy something, our food, our supplies somewhere else. If you don't make your commodities sustainable, if you don't stop using single-use plastics, uh, that you don't recycle your waste, that you are not promoting renewable energy or you know, water recycling your facilities, uh, all those sort of things on farms in urban areas. It's individual, it's neighborhood, it's community, groups, school action that can often galvanize much larger scale actions by that sort of combination of pressure and, and the positive demonstration effect. That would be my takeaway message. Well, you know, it's wonderfully encouraging. And taken that you have uh, experience on the ground in Africa, as we know, not having all the resources or uh, infrastructures in place, we can do a lot more, not just to survive, but to thrive, you know, here in Europe and in other countries. So thank you, Professor David Simon, for helping us understand the complexities we face and sharing your insights into how we can create fairer, more equitable, sustainable cities so that we can protect our planet and future generations. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet and Future Cities podcast. 
One Planet and Future Cities podcast is supported by the Yen Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Eric Rosen with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer of this podcast was Eric Rosen. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.